And welcome, everybody, to a special episode of the Animaniacast. Bunnies. Buster and Babs Bunny. No relation. Let's hope not. It's a children's show. And welcome, everybody, to another episode of Talkin' Tiny Tunes, San Diego edition. Bum, bum, bum. That's right. This is the podcast that, of course, is dedicated to the animated television series Animaniacs. But today, we're talking Tiny Tunes because we like to talk about all the cartoons within the Rugerverse, like Tiny Toon Adventures and Pinky and the Brain and Freakazoid. And today, we are specifically talking about the Tiny Toons slash Looney Tunes, well, really Looney Tunes slash a little bit of Tiny Toons panel at San Diego Comic-Con that Nathan and I were lucky enough to attend. I am Joey, and joining me is the aforementioned brother of mine, Nathan. That's not all, folks. <laughs> I mean, it is just me. That's okay, I was like, who else is there? <laughs> no, it's just Nathan today. Okay, well, that's right. Nathan and I are back from a whirlwind vacation to San Diego Comic-Con. Just got back in a few days ago, and boy, oh boy, uh, was it exhausting, but so much fun. Uh, we have a full rundown of all the different things that we saw and all the things that we did, as many of the things that we could legally talk about. Uh, <laughs> it's all over at RetroZap.com. So make sure you check out those uh, those episodes. They were a lot of fun to put together. Uh, just kind of recalling all the stuff that we did. So, but today, today, we're going to be sharing some audio from the Looney Tunes, Tiny Tunes panel, uh, that, so that you folks out there can listen to it. And we're also going to share an interview with Dave Pryor, who was an animator that worked on Star Tunes. And we're going to be sharing some additional panel audio from a panel that was all about 80s cartoon series and the writers that worked on them. So this is a jam-packed full episode of stuff. Yeah. We'll do some talking in between these things, I assume. Yes, yes, I don't yes. Know. Okay. <laughs> we got to get some intros, but I guess the main thing we got to talk about, we will be talking about, of course, after the uh, the panel audio for Tiny Tunes, of course, the the major uh, controversy that has that sprung up now, when as soon as the panel uh, ended, I think a lot of people uh, assumed that the the biggest controversy would be that um, the entire voice cast appears to be new for mm-hmm. Tiny Toon Adventures, which we had already, you know, yeah, we you know we we had yeah. already heard this, and you know, you try to tell people these things, and you know, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, finally people go, oh my gosh, it's true, uh, and uh, so. There's a new voice for Babs Bunny, and we can only assume that there's new voices for Buster and Plucky and all those folks as well. Although Eric Bauza does does say something in this panel right here of see you in class, so we can only assume that he's going to be doing the voice for at least Bugs and or uh, Daffy, I should say. Maybe mm-hmm. Plucky as well. We'll have to see. Um, but the main issue wasn't about the voice cast. It was the... I, w- w- what we thought initially was that had to have been a mistake. That, that couldn't have been. It's, a, it's very much like a throwaway line when you're listening yes. to the thing. Where I was like, did they just 
No. You'll hear Aaron Gibson in this panel say, and now here's Ashley, who plays Buster's twin, Babs. And everyone at the moment was, I think, at least I was, thinking, oh, new voice actress, new voice actress. Not, did she just say twin? <laughs> Nathan mm-hmm. Nathan, having such good ears was like, did she say twin? <laughs> I have bunny ears, like my yes. twin. <laughs> Buster. <laughs> Everyone's related to Buster these days. Yeah, we're all twins. Uh, <laughs> so um, sure enough, she did, and it was later confirmed uh, online. Let me let me pull up the uh, the artist who confirmed it. Um, this was confirmed by Len Corali, who uh, confirmed it on Twitter to uh, one of the Twitter followers on there. So. Yes, they are indeed going to be twins on this show. Uh, we'll talk more about the reactions and everything about the the Tiny Toons uh, designs and all that stuff in just a bit. Uh, but I think we better get right into the panel where we are kind of like uh, just getting ready for it. And then I think there's a little. I think I'll we'll still keep in the little weird part of singing Happy Birthday to Tweety Bird. I think is still on there. Yeah, there's. Yeah, we cut out a bit of this because there was a lot of fluff in the. Yeah, so. the, if, if there were one criticism, one big criticism of this panel is that Warner Brothers put in an entire episode of a preschool, the pre, preschool show uh, mm-hmm. featuring Bugs Bunny, which was incredibly loud. I think the decibel level was, like, yeah, it was ear, ear piercing almost. Mm-hmm. And um, this is a forty-five minute panel, and they're like, "Oh yeah, yes. let's just put that in. That sounds great. That's what yeah, people want to see." That, and yeah, exactly. Not not a, like a quick uh, two-minute yeah. sample to give if, us an idea. If this but. was a two-hour panel. Then yeah, go for it. Like whatever, but, but, but like this, but time also this, is short. <laughs> this and also this episode was premiering. I think that day. Yeah, that so day they weren't even giving like exactly the biggest exclusive there anyway. It wasn't so. That that was a bit of a disappointment. That was just a way to to eat up some time. And of course, at the end, again, a great time for questions from the audience. They played an entire long, long, boring song from this Bugs Bunny musical that's coming out. And I may or may not keep some... Actually, I think I'll keep that in because the song, I guess, is fine. But it does give you kind of an idea about... Um, boy, they're just uh, eating up time right here. So feel free to use that fast-forward uh, button yeah. towards it. I will not blame you. Uh, <laughs> and we'll catch you at the other end of it when we kind of give our uh, thoughts on the panel and some of the characters that were shown... But we're not really mentioned, obviously. Okay, so we'll see you back here after our panel audio from Tiny Toons. Mm-hmm. Okay, everybody, we're here in. We're at the Looney. Well, we're back. Looney Tunes. Joey's having a stroke. I've, I've been having a stroke all this morning. <laughs> uh, part of the expression, <laughs> but I've been so just wiped out. Like I had. I've had a medium diet coke and a coffee, and I'm just my brain is starting to to get into functioning mode. Uh, anyway, we're we're here at the panel, and we are ready to see what's going on with Looney Tunes and the thing that we're most you know excited about, which of course is the Tiny Tunes. Tiny Tunes. Yes, Luniversity. Yeah, that should be. They're going to tell us something about it, and Joey's going to ask a question about it if he can. So it should be really good. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> it's we're, luckily enough, we just happen to be right next to the microphone, so it's the chances of me being able to ask a question are 
relatively high. Although it's a short panel, so that also makes it relatively low. Yes, that's I forgot about that. Yeah, 45 minutes does not leave much time at all for questions. They're, yeah, they're going to be talking about three things. So they what, five minutes each? Then you got some time? <laughs> Maybe. So. Yeah, So, but we're in a good position for pictures, and we're in a good position for, for audio and stuff. So enjoy the panel. Hopefully, hopefully we all enjoy the panel. Hopefully it gets some good information. Hopefully it's it's audio worthy. Sometimes these panels are just like, look at this, look at this, look at this. Which is great for us, but not great for you guys. <laughs> exactly. In your mind's eye, imagine it. Okay. So let's go ahead and get... You're, we're going to skip ahead the waiting and we're going to go right to the panel right now. <laughs> is this a dream? Is this actually happening? What's up, Comic Con? I've waited three long years to say that in front of people. If Daffy here, he would probably say, Thanks for making the drive to see me at Daffy Con. Hello, everyone. My name is Eric Bauza, and welcome to the Looney Tunes panel at San Diego Comic Con. I'm the voice behind some of your favorite Looney Tunes classic characters you might know. I'm like Bugs Bunny, ain't he a stinker? Daffy Duck, you're all despicable. At Marvin the Martian, I do love Comic Con, but it does block my view of Venus, therefore I shall have to blow it up. <laughs> but I won't. And a few others. Uh, it's so great to see you all here today. I'm very excited about all the things, Looney, that we're going to talk about. Uh, but first, I wanted to introduce you to a, uh, a good friend of mine. We've been working together for a few years now, and uh, he wanted to say hi. Invited 
we only do classic pairings of the, the characters. Um, you know, we only use characters together that they use together, and, and uh, you know, trying to come up with premises and, and, and things that they would have done, even if they use like modern technology and things like that. It, it still try to create a comedy dynamic that, that really honors the mechanics of what was done in the classic shorts. Like literally back to the drawing board. Very much, yeah. So you will never find these characters in Looney Tunes cartoons playing a basketball game. <laughs> I mean, but I joke, but the funny thing is... You have a basketball short. Yeah. There is, there is. I joke, but the funny thing is, even if you do see them in a commercial for uh, chicken nuggets or shoes or a classic short or a reboot or a preschool show... Warner Brothers will always keep the integrity of who these characters are. Like, the world around them changes, but they never change. And that's what you can always count on uh, with the treatment of Bugs Bunny and Friends. So, uh, what is next for the series? Like, is there anything uh, special that we might be seeing throughout this new season drop? Well, there, there's so many more shorts coming. I mean, we, we, <laughs> we've made hundreds of them. So... Um, a thousand minutes, right? Yes. So there's, there's many, many more shorts. Um, uh, we do have uh, new characters that we have uh, uh, coming that oh. have uh, classic characters. But So Witch Hazel. Yes. And I have a solo short. You guys remember Witch Hazel? For her first time in a, in a solo cartoon without Bugs Bunny. Um, we also have the Three Bears. Very nice. Wonderful. Uh, uh, Characters. Um, very excited about this. We have Chuck Jones, we've got Pussyfoot, and Mark Anthony are, are coming back in a really wonderful uh, short. And then um, Chuck Jones again, we've got Ralph Phillips is, uh, is uh, <laughs> short also. That looks like my son, like in the morning before school. <laughs> Wake up, it's time to go to school. We've got a, a Halloween special that's uh, going to come out uh, in fall, presumably. Uh, nice. Probably the next thing that uh, from us that Looney Tunes is now pumpkin spice flavored. <laughs> pumpkin spice Looney Tunes. Um, and that's going to have a, a few different shorts, but that's going to include the uh, the uh, witch hazel short. Now uh, I don't want to. You're giving us all these goodies and Easter eggs and tidbits here. Uh, I don't want to act as spoiled, but uh, do you think there's any other fun Looney Tunes cartoon teases you want to drop with this audience, perhaps? Uh, I don't know. We've got a. I mean, we've got a fantastic uh, Tweety and Sylvester short, which mm-hmm. is all in pantomime, so you weren't a part of. I apologize, <laughs> but it's uh, set to classical music. That's that's really really great. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited about the Halloween special. This this Witch Hazel short uh, was one of the first things uh, I wanted to do when I, I uh, became part of the, the, the project of doing this uh, Witch Hazel. Um, playing in sort of a different style, mm-hmm. and uh, it turned out really cool. Man, I wish we could see it, don't you? Are we, are, do we actually? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we were going to see it. We're starting out.
definitely like one of those styles, like Chuck Jones definitely had like a specific style and like how to capture that in like the modern tech that we have with animation. But you guys totally did exactly what I knew you guys were going to do and nailed it. Um, That's how you live. Yeah. <laughs> um, we also might have another sneak peek at, uh, at one of those characters we just yes. So, um, as I mentioned, Ralph Phillips, uh, who's a little daydreamer boy, um, we tried to do um, something that Chuck Jones didn't do with the character, and something that we thought might, we thought we'd take a look at, because it might play well to this crowd. Okay. Do you guys want to see? to stay out of Gotham. Well, this is the last time. It's 
the inventors the inventors lend to the looniness. I think that's the the big important part. It's it's wherever it takes them, it's as wacky and, and as loony as any other iteration of Looney Tunes. Now uh, I'm a dad. Uh, but I'm also uh, a child myself um, of a six-year-old, and, and I'm a six-year-old dad inside. But what kind of specialties do these characters have? And I'm talking about, like, vehicles and stuff, and, like, I don't know. I'm looking forward to the toys on the show. <laughs> well, uh, of course, Bugs has the excavator. Natural-born digger, right? He's a bunny. Um, but he's also same cool, collect, uh, you know, level-headed Bugs, uh, gets things done. Uh, him and Lola are both the co-managers, and Lola is fantastic in this. She has her bulldozer. Um, she's kind of the architect and the creative. Uh, she always has her trusty tablet, and she's always coming up with these crazy and wacky ideas. Uh, and she's like a dreamer and a doer, so it's really, really great to have Lola on this team. Uh, and then we have Daffy, and he drives his dump truck, and, you know, if Daffy needs a haul... Yeah, or, I'm sorry, if, if you need a haul, you give Daffy a haul. Give Daffy a haul. <laughs> so he's great. Uh, he gets a little distracted at times, but, you know, uh, you'll see more of that. Um, and then Porky, Porky uh, tries to steamroller. He is Porky perfect. He likes everything to be meticulous. He always has everyone's back. He's kind. He's very supportive. And then we have Tweety, and Tweety for us is kind of our gateway for kids, so he asks a lot of questions and really gets in there, but uh, he has a crane, and I don't think there's anything we haven't done that Tweety cannot get done with that crane. He's from the littlest piece of popcorn to, you know, big boulders, he can do anything he Maybe the hardest voice I've ever had to do. Make Tweety sound younger. Yeah. I'm like, what? Well, I do that for Like dogs come from around the neighborhood. <laughs> well, as a special treat for the audience, we have a never-before-seen brand-new episode of Bugs Bunny Builders that is launching on YouTube later today. But for you guys, we're going to check it out now, if you guys are there. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I can't even believe you're saying those 
Um, it feels amazing. Uh, so I moved to Los Angeles to do acting 10 years ago, and I just kind of fell into doing voiceovers. Um, and so I still feel very new to it all, and this is my first lead role in an animated series. Um, It's uh, old, 
because it's classic, right? And I don't remember, no, and it is everybody. It's not the whole, these are top main five characters um, as the original, but they all get equal screen time. They're all very much integral to this, to, to the stories of, of this uh, reboot. It's like you guys built a time machine that went back to the 90s, and here we are again. Thank you, guys. Yeah, and I want to say, like, we're, gonna, we're, we're keeping, there are going to be tons of silly gags, there's going to be tons of big comedy, but we've got a lot of references to the 90s if you're my age. <laughs> you know, if you need a voice to men joke, we got it for you. Sweet. Well, since it's been a while, uh, and I haven't done this in three years, there's one tidbit that we left out from Alex's presentation that I'd like to circle back to, just within the Looney Tunes cartoons universe. I remember earlier this year there was an announcement about a Looney Tunes movie starring Porky and Daffy. Can you tell us about the film? Yes. Uh, in the few minutes we have left? No, uh... These folks? Yeah, we're, we're doing a Looney Tunes cartoons movie. As you mentioned, it has Parky and Daffy, which are two of our, our favorite characters to work with. Uh, and on the shorts, we realize they're two of the only non-adversarial uh, characters. Uh, the only, two of the only two characters who aren't trying to devour each other. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, this movie is called, uh, we haven't announced the name yet, but it's The Day the Earth Blew Up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that seems appropriate. <laughs> There it is, guys. The day the Earth blew up, coming soon. Some kind of screen near you. Guys, we're almost out of time here. This has been so much fun. Thank you all for being such great audience members and fans. Before we go, we have one more thing we'd like to share. Uh, Warner Brothers Animation has been working on another original animated Looney Tunes movie called Bye Bye Bunny. A Looney Tunes musical. As you guys know, music has always been a big part of Looney Tunes. Uh, that will be coming to Cartoon Network and H2MX soon. The movie will be uh, built upon legendary musical legacy of Looney Tunes and features original music from Tony, Grammy, and Pulitzer Prize award-winning songwriter Tom Kitt, uh, with lyrics by Ariel Dumas, who is the head writer for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Uh, so we're going to close today's panel by sharing a special video featuring Mr. Tom Kitt singing one of the main songs from the movie. Uh, in the movie, Bugs Bunny decides it's time to retire from a life of being the world's most famous rabbit. And this song sums up uh, his wish, and it's going to provide you with a little visual history lesson of Bugs. So, goodbye everyone. Make sure to watch the Looney Tunes cartoons on HBO Max, Bugs Bunny Builders on Cartoon Tunes on HBO Max, and be sure to look up for Tiny Tunes, as well as the other Looney Tunes cartoons coming soon to you. Roll the clip. <laughs> Toss my whole cup.
back in the present sort of <laughs> <laughs> where well, our present is our, your past yes exactly Ooh, what is time okay let's go ahead <laughs> and go over the uh the characters that we saw of course the, the a lot of the major characters uh that we saw the the ones that they were talking about in the panel that were featured heavily uh, i believe they were they were sweetie we had babs and buster hampton plucky those were like the five, I believe they yeah. said that were going to be they would focusing. each have equal screen time. Right. Those five, so. um, on the main uh, artwork that you can see um, really all over the place, you can also see Dizzy and Furball and Calamity and Fifi and Shirley the Loon and Go-Go and uh, Little Beeper. And you can even see Montana Max and Elmira in there. And, uh, oh, like forgot Sneezer. 
he's in there too. So a lot of the classic characters um, with you know a little bit of a modern look to them. Uh, there was even another shot that they showed. Uh, if you guys can remember in the original series when they said those lines, we're all a little loony, and all those characters kind of popped in in a circle around the the screen. Mm-hmm. Well, they had a they kind of had a similar shot uh, during uh, the panel. And it showed a lot of the characters that uh, I had just mentioned. However, they showed even more classic characters, and even one, cla- even one, one or two characters that I think are brand new. Yeah, um, or they so, were so small that we forget about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, Marsha the Martian is uh, was shown. Uh, there was also oh the uh, let's see Foulmouth was there mm-hmm. uh they also have a sheepdog which i can only assume could be saul the sheepdog that's the only one i got from uh the the you know when i typed in sheepdog in tiny tunes mm-hmm. beaky uh or i'm sorry not not beaky buzzard but concord condor is uh shown in the the shot and then we have i believe it's i believe it's just called bookworm is there mm-hmm. uh, Barky? Yeah, so. yeah, Barky Malarkey was there, and then they had this um, raccoon with really kind of with a pierced ear and cool shades, and they look—I don't know—they look real cool. What can I say about that raccoon? I do not know where that raccoon is from. Um, I'm assuming it's a brand new character. If, if you folks out there know of any. Uh, Raccoon and Tiny Tunes, <laughs> let me know. But I think that one's new. So, uh, you know, 90% old characters and a little bit of new. Uh, honestly, the the look of the characters, I think people were very positive about. Um, the, it looked really good. Um, I was actually surprised at how much the characters looked true to their original form. And they even got a lot of positive praise from uh creator of the Tiny Toon Adventures, Tom Ruger, who said great artwork. And, uh, you know, I saw compliments on other feeds on Facebook and stuff where he was just complimenting how the, 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 the figures looked very similar to the classic designs that they worked on in the 90s, which, hey, that's, that's a great it, – it's always great when the creator of the show likes what you're doing, especially when he's not involved at all with the show. <laughs> um with this show, I should say. Yeah, and uh, we heard that uh, uh, Steven Spielberg is a fan of the animation and during yeah that, that he says it, he panel, said yeah. you could hear in the panel that he uh, he they, he likes the look of this iteration the most, mm-hmm. um, which he I, I think above all it's probably because it's very consistent. It's, mm-hmm. They're probably not going to multiple uh, animation studios because as as great as some of those uh, Tiny Toons episodes are, I mean, we, we're coming up uh, – our next one that we're going to be reviewing uh, <laughs> is one that was done by Freelance Animation. And even though the episode is very good, you know, the animation studios that they go to are not always the best. So this lo- looks like the consistency is going to be, uh, you know, high shelf animation, which is fantastic. But then we got to the whole thing about Buster and Babs being twins. And this was confirmed, like I said before, uh, online. Um, And it has made a lot of people, I think, either A, 
confused, B, mm-hmm. angry, C, angry and confused, or D, ambivalent, and they're just like, I'm still going to give the, the show a chance. Mm-hmm. I think mostly people are I, – I if I were to <laughs> gauge it from our social media, I think most people are very upset because they're thinking uh, not just that it's kind of just odd that they're doing that, but you know, I think there's a good argument that they say – you know, the thing that these shows do is that they introduce these characters to a younger audience. And now kids will watch the show and then say, oh, there's more Tiny Toons on, like, Hulu? Okay, I'll watch that. Wait, why are these twins, like, kissing going each other? Going on a date. Yeah, exactly. But going to the dance together, kissing on the cheek. And, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a very odd choice. And it either – it shows you that, A, like, okay, I guess they're not – doing a continuation that this is a brand new universe and that tiny tunes luniversity luniverse yeah very good Uh (laughs) but the but the luniversity is truly it's not like it's uh they're not they were in middle school together and now they're going to college it's like no they're they're i'm guessing they're just going to be meeting each other in college i guess yeah or they found out in the meantime, that they're brother and sister, like which Luke is even, and Leia, which found yeah. out they were brother and sister, even though they had kissed. Yeah, I think more this than would once. Be, this is this would be even worse, though. <laughs> yeah, there's, well, there's just more instances of yeah, you know, the, the, the amount of it, and anytime it happened in Star Wars, it was either you know relatively innocent like a kiss for good luck before you go across a chasm or a way to make han jealous like in the hot yeah. you know in the hot hospital mm-hmm. in the hot hospital that's what they're called on hot yeah. hospitals <laughs> yeah so this this does it feels weird and honestly it makes me wonder did the i i hate to say this but did the showrunners um did they watch the original show because uh, why the the decision i would love to i just want to know what the reasoning was behind yeah this. Was i it, can't imagine there being a great reason because even like if they wanted to go oh we don't want them to be like in a relationship thing like we don't want we don't want it to be a platonic relationship you can have a platonic relationship and not be related to someone it happens say, a lot in real life people yeah. have platonic relationships <laughs> that they're not related to yeah wow hmm. I know, and eighty or ninety percent of Tiny Toons, Buster and Babs are very platonic, and they're just yeah, kind of exactly, introducing so. shows, and they're not really doing. They're not like, "Hey, Toonsters, we're on another date." You know, it's just like we're going someplace together, and we're here's another cartoon. Well, as you can probably imagine, there was a lot of feedback for this whole twin issue, and well, instead of going to every single one. We decided to just go ahead and go to our patrons over at patreon.com slash animaniacast because, well, they're keeping the lights on over here, so why not give them a chance to talk? So Eric said, I was really confused about Buster and Babs now being related when they're supposed to not be related, just like in the original series. I honestly think that them being twins and instead of a couple really throws things in a loop. I really hope that the new team could fix the dynamic of Buster and Babs Bunny, but I'm a still a fan. I'm still a big fan of Tiny Toons, and I would watch the reboot no matter what. Tamara said, "I got to say, I do like their new designs, but Buster and Babs being twins throws me off. It is really disappointing." 
First, they ruin Bugs and Lola's relationship in that horrible Space Jam movie. And now, Buster and Babs. I just don't know what to say anymore. What's wrongs? What's wrong with rabbits falling in love with each other? Well, I think we all know what's wrong with it. more rabbits. That's what's wrong. No. Um, and Brian says, I always assumed they liked each other. I also remember Buster expressing being the son of Bugs Bunny and having big shoes to fill around campus. I do not remember that, Brian. Um, at least, uh, but there, there have been some people, although online, saying, I thought he was Bugs' son or something. And no, that's, uh, that's not the case. He's just, uh, Bugs is a mentor to Buster. Uh, Christian says, as for me, a person who never really got heavily into Tiny Toons, I think making the duo twins was a mistake from a PR perspective alone. I like the idea of symbiotic, supportive twins making friends and finding themselves in college. It just shouldn't, it just should have been another duo. The sheer PR fiasco has altogether overshadowed what I feel to be an otherwise very promising reboot. I get why the crew made the decision. They thought that because it was a full-on reboot, something not that well communicated as of now, they could have made this Babs and Buster Bunny, no relation, pun intended, to the OG incarnations. Uh, Twins and not get... uh, To the OG incarnations, twins, and not get a lot of negative feedback. There we go. (laughs) However, besides not communicating well... Uh, that Luniversity was a continuity reset, they severely underestimated how integral No Relation and The Romance were to Babs and Buster, leading to the backlash we see today. Well, there we go. So thank you very much, patrons, for all that feedback. And now back to our previously, previously recorded segment with me and Nathan. Very, just a very odd choice and i hate to say it but it really even if it's not true it it does look it does give the impression that those in charge of the show did never were familiar with the original show at all uh, to, to come mm-hmm. up with such a glaring yeah, mistake it seems like it's just someone some executive or something someone at the top of the line somewhere is just like oh yeah and they're twins like whatever yeah you know we'll yeah. have them do that you know, and then it just kind of is like, well, he's my boss, so I'll do what he's at, you know. Which, again, I know people get very upset whenever uh, voice actors are announced uh, in shows and it's not the exact voice actor you want. But, folks, if you get if, – if folks have gotten a little bit more perturbed when um, creators and writers of the show were announced um, and they're not from the original run at all – things like this are bound to happen eventually. Yeah, because those are the people that will fight for, even if their boss says a thing, they'll be like, uh, no, this is not how it goes. This is how yeah. this is supposed to I guarantee you, Tom would not have said, okay, now they're going to be twins. Tom would put up the fight <laughs> and actually, because we, we've heard the stories of Tom going up against the executives and, mm-hmm. and him having trouble with certain members of them because he has to fight. He fought for what he knew was right for the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and this would, this does seem like I, I, I mismanagement somewhere, yep. bad decisions somewhere. Uh, hope. And you know what? I, I'm, 
I'm not optimistic that it could change, but I think it's still possible. That's they, true. I mean, they, it's they could we don't even it. have a release date for the show. There's no release date. It, it they could had be, art. Yeah, had it could be two years. Us. It could be a year. It could be five years. You know, like, it's not coming out this year. <laughs> no, it's not coming out in 2022. Not a 2022 release. And, and, and it's... And, Maybe not even next year because yeah, I mean it would be late 2023 if it comes out next year. So yeah, for them to have um, basically said like for the Spider-Man thing, I think did they even say 2024 or something? Yeah, like that, that was 2024. For they, Spider-Man. Yeah, for the animated Spider-Man, they at least gave us a, a, a date 20 late 20 or just they, they said 2024. Yeah, uh, and for them just to say it's coming for Tiny Tunes makes you wonder like okay, they've been working on this show for over a year or so and or have at least a year or so more to work on it still. So there, mm-hmm. there, there's, there's still an opportunity perhaps for things to change. We'll just have to, we'll have to see. Yeah. If you're related to an executive at tiny to, you know, if at Warner Brothers. Yeah. If your twin is one of the executives at Warner Brothers, be like, Hey, Remember the? Can you change the? <laughs> you know, like you're working look, on tiny two. Look from one and twin to the other. Yeah, just from one twin to the other. Let's let's. We don't have to be twins all the time, I and mean, not everybody has to be a twin, right? Um, <laughs> you know, Mike and me might be able to get through to him. Uh, at any rate, uh, please, you know, you can always uh, feel free to let us know your opinions, uh, ladies and gentlemen, by sending them over to animaniacast at gmail dot com, or of course over at Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We'll have lots of the debate continues to rage on over there, and we don't have really time to to read all those all the other than to say join the conversation just be mm-hmm. be courteous courteous of one another but hey uh it's some interesting reactions i'll say <laughs> hopefully the <laughs> folks at warner brothers uh take a look at some of those reactions as well um i don't know how many you know some people are starting petitions and things like that and i've never been uh, of the mind that Online petitions usually do much. I think they don't the, do anything. So I, I think if the why not? I think if <laughs> yeah, if you want to use your time doing that, that's great. But I think honestly, if it if it's just the general, um, if your voices are being heard through social media, um, that that does get heard. Yeah. How do uh, you? How did we get Sonic to be uh, change his teeth? What there if, was no there was no petitions. It was a lot of just angry yeah, people. So. so. We get it viral on Twitter, yeah. Then maybe, yeah. But Buster and Babs, no relation, was the biggest running gag I could think of on that show. It was mm-hmm. literally that was something their catch. That was their hello nurse. Saying, What's up, doc? Sure. Or yeah. whatever. Yeah, mm-hmm. they, and and it <laughs> it was just I, I have no idea how they could not have picked up on that and. Run with it. But they didn't again, mean like literally no relation, did they? I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, it's when they were saying no relation, they were like, no relationship because we're twins. Right. That's what they'll say this time. No relationship. <laughs> Buster, I'm Buster, we're twins. Buddy. So we're not uh, Babs, buddy. No relationship. Yeah. We're twins. <laughs> and then they move on to the rest of the cartoon. Um, anyway. And then, well, and the, the, the fact that they're in college now is a bit weird, I guess. Well, and they look exactly the same, mostly. It is true. They, they, they're size-wise, <laughs> and a lot of people are, yeah, people have not really picked up on that. It's like, wait a minute, these are these these are tunes in college now, and yet they're still uh, yeah. little kid size? They're there's, the size of, uh, I don't know about are, you, are but... They, are they still 14 and now in yeah. college? 
don't know about I, you folks out there, but when I was in college, I was not uh, uh, half my size I currently. Um, you would think that, like, I'm glad that they didn't make them <laughs> uh, yeah, as tall as bugs. I, I think that would have been even weirder. Yeah, I um, like the animation looks mostly the same for everyone. So yeah. I guess that's a positive. They but. still do need to be tiny in order to be tiny tunes, I guess. So um, as soon as they graduate college, they become big. Uh, anyway, let's get, a, let's get a palate cleanser, shall we? Let's go ahead and get to our interview with Dave Pryor, who we met on the Artist Alley floor of San Diego Comic-Con. He talked to us just a little bit about working with StarTunes. Let's go ahead and get to our interview with Dave. Okay, well, this is Joey here from the Animaniacast. Of course, we got Nathan. Oh, hi, Joey. Hi, Nathan. How are you doing? <laughs> oh, I'm really good. Okay. I don't really care about that because we have someone much more important than either one of us Aww. right here. Oh. We've got <laughs> four, we got a StarTunes alumni here at... San Diego Comic Con. It's Mr. Dave Pryor. Hi, Dave. Hello, guys. Hey. Nice to, nice to meet you in the flesh. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm I'm always shocked when somebody says, "Oh, I've listened to you." I was like, "What? That's that's impossible." <laughs> so I'm glad to finally meet one of our ten listeners. This is fantastic. Uh, well. Well, you're like. I mean, if it wasn't for Animaniacs fans, you know, we wouldn't have a reboot and all the other stuff that's gone along with Animaniacs. You know? Exactly. Exactly. So. You, you work with Star Tunes, you were saying, from 1992 up until it closed. That's right. So tell us, like, how, I guess first you, you, you got your start in there. How did you get the job to begin with, I suppose, there? I was going to Columbia College in the city of Chicago. Uh-huh. John McClanahan uh, was teaching over there. He actually went to the school in order to uh, train animators that he would then hire out of school. Or, you know, the, slim pickings in Chicago. So... Where better than to just train the people to do the skills that you're going to need to hire for? So I was a teaching assistant over there, and then I went over to uh, uh, his class. I didn't, wasn't enrolled in his class, but I just sat in on it. And he would teach things like how to clean up, do like clean, clean up work for the animator's work. Uh-huh. Um, so I did a little bit of that. Um, and then I got a summer, in, not an internship, it was a full-time job over the summer, a year before I was graduating and worked with all the animators that were part of the team then. Uh, they were finishing up on Tiny Toons at the time. Right. Uh, maybe a little bit of Tasmania still at that point. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and then picking up that big contract with the first season of Animaniacs. Fantastic. So do you, do you have a favorite scene or a favorite character or something that you worked on that you're like, oh, this was, this was you know, fond memories of doing? Uh, the Randy Beemans were always fun. <laughs> They were really long scenes, and you know we were paid by footage by the amount of work that we did. Okay. <laughs> so you would, you know, that was a that was almost a break compared to doing the Animaniacs and other scenes that had lots of characters in them. They had to like, you know, okay, I got all these characters running in a circle, versus Randy Beeman, which was pretty much just standing there and telling his story yes. and all that stuff. So um, that was a great scene to uh, get awarded to you and you know work on for like a good week. Right, and you got to do all those like little side like you be, you got to add so much to the character as well. There's so many little mannerisms that go on with Rand, with uh, the pollen, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or adjusting his hands. Blowing the bubble, yeah, he'd be doing a lot of like wiping, yeah, yeah exactly. wiping his hands, his sticky hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and of course, Startoons did, just in my opinion, the best skippy and slappy work of yeah. any of the, the studios was. 100%, you know, Star Tunes right there. Slipping, yeah, th- those were wonderful characters to do too. Uh, some of John's favorites. And, yeah. uh, he always loved those guys, and I love the way he handled the design of them too. 
Yeah. Um, and I think the, the way he drew was always the way I looked up to. Like, I would love to be able to do work as quickly and as wonderful as John could do it. Yes. So he was one of the mentors, and I would practice drawing, getting a lot of his scenes. Right. And the way I would draw Slappy nowadays would be very much like the way John would have done it versus yeah. maybe straight off the model sheet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully, I don't know, hopefully we might see some more Slappy in the future on the reboot. We're, we're, yeah. not, we're not 100% sure, but we'd love to see it because, we, you know, she's such an awesome character. Yeah. Um, well, you, currently, I mean, you, uh, what, what, what's, what are you up to currently these days, Dave? Uh, these days I'm an art director for a gaming company, so I work with a ton of artists all over the world as we're making games. And uh, one of the more interesting side projects I've been doing uh, lately has been design work for the new uh, Fred Rogers series Don Quixote which oh. maybe you've seen it's for younger folks expanding on the Fred Rogers universe um, and I did the puppet designs and certain other designs that are in the show so That's I work fantastic. on that side and uh, I, I know we follow you on Instagram what, what, what's your what's your Instagram uh, title uh, you can follow me at Dave Pryor 72 uh, I can go. see the latest work that I've illustrated I like to do work all the time just for fun and post it and so uh, sometimes I get t- time to do small animations just in free time, uh, but otherwise I'm just busy doing you know whatever projects are are uh, on my plate freelance wise and uh, during my full time job. Well, awesome. Well, mm-hmm. thank you so much, Dave, for taking the time to talk to us. I mean, it's been awesome. I know you just like mentioned us in, your, in the Instagram things. Hey, come talk to me. And I was like, absolutely. Hey, someone wants to talk to us. Oh my gosh, it's an honor. Well, no, certainly, it really was an honor talking to you for yeah. the brief moment. But uh, uh, good luck here at the con. This is the first first big day of the con, the big Thursday. Yep. Hope you have a, a really successful yeah, convention. Yeah, I started coming here in 2008 was when I had my first table and been doing it uh, ever since then. So. Fantastic. So, mm-hmm. if you, you, so if you didn't catch him this year, you should be back next year, I'm assuming. And then <laughs> yeah, get your, or catch me in Chicago, C2E2. Oh, yeah. yeah. I do that yeah. show. There you go, for all the Midwesterners mm-hmm. out there. Exactly. All right. <laughs> well, thanks again, Dave, for uh, taking some time to talk to us. We'll let you get back to your booth and get those last-minute sales before they kick us all out of here. <laughs> Sounds great. All right. Thanks, have a, thanks yeah, so much. Thanks so much. All right. So talking with Dave was great. We got to, you know, take a quick selfie with him. Yeah, he was um, super nice. Send us that selfie, Dave. I never got that selfie. Send, hey, e- yeah. Email that, email that to us. Uh, at any rate, um, it was great meeting him. And I, I really think that one of these days we got to do a Star Tunes, uh, you know, special. Yeah. We get to as many a reunion for all those Star Tunes. Yeah, we get as many Star Tunes people as we can all together on one episode and have a good time talking with all of them about working on Animaniacs and stuff. So we'll see. Hopefully that can happen in the future. Well, let's go ahead. Before we wrap things up for today, uh, we're going to get to a, a panel to close things off with. A look back at animated series from the 80s. And uh, this this is the description they had on Comic-Con. It says, Writers from your favorite 1980s cartoon series recount their fondest memories and painful war stories about the shows that made your childhood. Craig Miller from the Smurfs, the real Ghostbusters, and uh, Brooks Wachell, uh, and Eric Luwald, and, uh, oh, my... I can't remember. Not all of them made. Not it, all of them too. were there. Yes, that's true. It was a COVID uh, outbreak, so yeah, it might have been Eric Lewald because this one says Galaxy High, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, which I don't mm. know if that one was there. Karen Wilson, I believe, was there. I think so. Uh, and, uh, but uh, yes. At any rate, they'll introduce themselves. It was a very nice panel. Uh, it was. I think the the highlight uh, will come when they're talking about once again executives 
talking about not knowing about uh, what it what it is. <laughs> what, that makes how, it cartoon good. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So how, uh-huh. how apropos that we're talking about the, <laughs> that with uh, the Tiny Dune stuff. Um, but if you don't want to listen to it, that's perfectly fine. But uh, I think we might as well sign off right now so that we yeah. can get to that. So, Nathan, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, JingoFT. That's me. All right. As for the Animaticast, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all that jazz. And, of course, RetroZap.com is where you can find our previous reports on San Diego Comic-Con. We had a blast, and we hope you enjoy listening to those things. And enjoy RetroZap.com for a bunch of articles and podcasts every day. We're a proud member of the RetroZap Podcast Network, and uh, I want you to check them out. If you want to talk about Tiny Tunes or whatever, you can head on over to our Discord. You can get a welcome link by going to discord.animaniacast.com. And if you're a super big fan of our show and you want to get some cool bonuses head on over to our Patreon. Become our supporter of our Patreon by going to patreon.com slash animaniacast. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get to the panel right now. But for Nathan and Kelly, who's not here, but she'll be back next time. This is Joey saying goodnight, everybody. Oh, I'm going to listen to this thing, so. Oh. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 10 a.m. morning panel on 80s television animation. I would like to apologize for a couple of our uh, speakers that are missing. Uh, Craig Miller, who is going to be the moderator, is down with COVID-19, as is Brooks Wachtel. Karen Wilson will be coming shortly, but she is trying to make her way from the parking lot and getting her orange band so she can get here. So she sent me ahead. My name is Chris Weber. I'll tell you more about me in a moment, but first we'll have our other panelists introduce themselves. Hi, uh, I'm Eric Lee Wolf, and uh, old friend of Craig. I was picked for the panel because I started my long uh, animation career in December 84, pitching to Hanna-Barbera, who was the, the, the huge company at the time. Uh, for Challenge of the Go-Bots. And I've never written animation before. Uh, a buddy of mine and I from the University of Tennessee were, got, were out here trying to break into writing. We were writing specs and working on low-budget movies. And finally, we got one pitch. A dear friend said, they're hiring at HB because they just added on a couple of new 65-episode uh, syndicated shows, which is a new thing now. It used to be 13 episodes for just about everything on Saturday morning. And the toy company realized, hey, we can, we can run five days a week. So suddenly HB had doubled the, the, the amount of work to do. And that's how I got my foot in the door on the, on the GoBots. We got one show in, they liked it. And they said, okay, you guys want to do another one? We said, well, we're really not a writing team. We kind of cheated on that. We just both wanted to get in the business. Okay, we each get a script. And, Kelly Ward and Jeff Siegel, to their credit, looked at us and frowned and said, well, but one of you could really suck. We don't know which one. And so thinking on our feet, because we both wanted work, we said, well, look, I said, if he's the one that sucks, I'll rewrite this for free, and he'll do the same for me. And okay. So we got our our second and third uh, assignments, and it just kind of took off from there. We both got on staff, and then staff in Disney and other places. But that was... That was the foot in the door 
was there was six episodes of Challenge of the Robots with Leader One and writing for transforming vehicles at a time before we knew Transformers our competitor was anything special. I'm John Semper. Um, I'm probably best known for having been the head writer and producer of Spider-Man the Animated Series. But in the uh, 1980s, this is my 40th year. This is actually my 40th year in the business. I started out at uh, Hanna-Barbera writing Scooby-Doo. And uh, that, that really came about because my uh, partner at the time, Cynthia Friedlow, um, she had been working in the executive offices at Hanna-Barbera and they wanted to downsize. And Margaret Lesh, the famous Margaret Lesh, who would later go on to head Fox and produce Spider-Man and X-Men. Um, Margaret was in charge of Hanna-Barbera at the time and Margaret did not like firing people. So the way that she would let people go is she would turn to them and say, I've got very good news, I'm going to make you a writer. <laughs> and so she came to Cynthia and she said that, and Cynthia was crestfallen. Uh, I was working, uh, at that time I was in post-production. We were living together and I was working uh, on a movie called DC Cab at Universal uh, with Mr. T and Gary Busey and all these people. And she came home that night and she said, uh, I said, what's wrong? And she said, well, I've been let go. And I said, really, they let you go? And she said, well, no, you know, they made me a writer, but yeah, I am. <laughs> and I said, well, just tell them, go back and tell them tomorrow that you'll be a writer. And she said, well, I, I don't want to do that. And I said, no, I'll do it. And then, you know, we'll be a team. And she said, all right, all right. So she went back and she said, okay, I'll, I'll take the writing gig. And then we ended up selling uh, about three or four uh, Scooby-Doo's that year to uh, ABC. We became two of ABC's favorite writers. And, um, and then they said, uh, at Hanna-Barbera, they said, well, who's this John Semper guy? And she said, well, you know, he used to, I used to work in post-production at H&B. I used to be down in the editorial department. So all the producers knew me because I would sit with them and we would look at their films when they came in from overseas and we would fix them. So they said, oh yeah, we remember that guy. Well, okay, tell, tell him uh, that we want him and, and you on staff, is saying this to Cynthia. And so uh, I became a staff writer at Hanna-Barbera, and I'm proud to say I was the first black uh, staff writer in animation history. Thanks. And then as Eric said, it was a time of these ridiculous toy orders where toy companies realized that the greatest way that they could sell their product would be to create a 65 episode TV show that would run in syndication. And there was a lot of dead air time at that time, so there was a lot of air time for these shows to run. So suddenly, you know, you get handed 65 episodes of something and uh, with really with very little uh, lead time, which was great because that meant they couldn't fiddle around too much. So I ended up uh, going on a run in the 80s where I went from uh, staff at Hanna-Barbera, where I worked on everything at, at Hanna-Barbera, Scooby-Doo, Jetsons, um, uh, Biscuits, uh, 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 Shirt Tails, uh, Good Grief, everything they did, Smurfs, 
Um, I, I wrote on all of those shows, and then after that, uh, Margaret Lefthand of Barbarian took a bunch of us over to Marvel Productions with, a, with her. And so there I did uh, Fraggle Rock, um, Jim Henson, and uh, my first show that I ran, I ran Fraggle Rock, but my first show that I ran was a show called The Moon Dreamers, which I still have a fondness for, which was based on a toy line. Everything Marvel Productions did at that time was really uh, based on a Hasbro toy line. So that's where they ended up doing Transformers and all those kind of Muppet babies and stuff. And I did uh, um, Moon Dreamers, which was a toy line. Uh, and so the 80s for me was probably my busiest era. Uh, because then when we get into the 90s, it gets into Spider-Man, and that's a whole later story. Um, so anyway, there you go. Yeah. OK, well, yeah, then, uh, and to finish up my 80s, because we got the start in December 84. Um, at Hanna-Barbera, I was a freelance. As, as John was saying, most people then, uh, it was like script to script. If you sell a script, you'd have the rent. And if you didn't, you didn't. And that's why when the, the word on staff, oh my God, actual, that actual uh, salary that we could count on would be a great thing, because otherwise you saw like a shoe salesman constantly pitching stories and hoping that it's something that the, the guy, the buyer likes. Um, but yeah, when I got started at, at Hanna-Barbera, there are a few things. I mean, it was, it was uh, let's see, I'm look back here, because I have to look at my list. Um, there were there was an embarrassing CBS show called Popeye and Son, which I don't know if you remember, but the first note we got from CBS when we were trying to do the show is uh, Popeye and Ludo can't fight. <laughs> and really, <laughs> well, okay. And you've got these neat little drawings of the little kid that looks like Popeye, but Popeye's ugly, so make his son look like Archie. That, that was the level of care that some shows got, and luckily it wasn't, it wasn't all the shows. There was a, there was a toy base, like you said, a Kenner toy based show called Sky Commanders that Kelly Ward and I were, the first thing that I ever had a chance to run wasn't a network show, it was a syndicated show in the afternoon. And the terrible thing about the toy that went with the show, which we only got one season of, it's a bunch of action heroes fighting in a future apocalyptic, uh, world, and they had to slide everywhere on cables to get from point A to point B. And the reason for that is, is that the toy gave you like 12 inches of string, and the kids would tie it to the to their parents' uh, living room furniture and slide the Sky Commanders along and, and knock the other Sky Commander off. And that was, a, we, we're just looking at the Kenner people and thinking, how am I supposed to tell a realistic story that like a 12 year old would get behind where the people have to fight on strings. <laughs> but, but, but you know, you, you do what you do and it was, you do what you do. It was a gig. For a year I, I went sideways. There's a wonderful Japanese animation house called PMS who did a lot of the Disney actual animation and for the Disney afternoon uh, block. And they had a little studio near us after I'd worked for Anna Barbera for a while got an offer to go there and be a development guy, come up with new shows to pitch, because they didn't know the American market, and they had a staff of about three people there. And so for, it was a great time. For 10 months, I got to just think up shows for my boss, who was Sidney Eyewander, happened to be, who ended up being the guy that hired me at Fox to do Beetlejuice and X-Men. 
So that first gig where you know always do your best work no matter how strange the situation, working with him on that first thing for TMS uh, got me some of my coolest jobs later. And we sold one show that year for all the work we were doing called Galaxy High. And John Chris Bellucci designed it. So it really is really beautiful. It, you know, Sydney and I sold it, somebody else took over and was running it, and I was out the door before I'd even had the but I had got that satisfaction of hearing, oh, CBS has bought your show guys, and you know, for a first year guy, and I'm, oh my god, this is wonderful. We didn't get any credit. They put Chris Columbus's name on as having created it because that worked, that would sell better to CBS. And they're probably right. It could have made the sale. But so if you look up Galaxy High, Sydney's name and my name aren't anywhere near it. Uh, Chris Columbus came up with that series. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, my name is Chris Weber, just to jump in here. Sure. And uh, I also was working with my wife, Karen Wilson, as a writer during the 80s. And many of the same shows that these gentlemen have been speaking about are shows that we ended up pitching and selling to. Uh, during the 80s and early 90s, I think we ended up with a total of about 50 half hours that we managed to sell. And the, uh, the way we got in, originally I had gotten my master's degree in communication arts television from Loyola Marymount, Los Angeles. And with that in hand, I got a job at Filmation working as a pre-production assistant. So I was in there making sure the writers knew what the artists were doing and the artists knew what the writers were doing and Robbie London and the people in charge were uh, getting things going there. Anyway, the second season of He-Man, they had produced over 120 episodes already and they were running out of ideas. So my wife and I had uh, Karen Wilson, who was my wife and co-writer, had taken a class over at Hanna-Barbera in writing specifically for animation. So we said, well, heck, we could do this. So we pitched and we sold our first story. Well, we didn't sell our first story. We, we pitched an idea. They liked it enough that we got to write one act of He-Man. And they said, OK, that's good. Now pitch us some real stories. We did. And we managed to sell one He-Man. We sold the episode of The Toy Maker, which was our uh, first episode. Then we went on, we wrote uh, a couple episodes of She-Ra, and we ended up working for, um, I think I counted last night, 20 different companies over over the time period. Uh, we did some uh, staff development. Uh, we did six months at TMS. We did a couple episodes of Galaxy High, and later we did six months of uh, development over Ruby Spears, and my wife and I ended up uh, creating Dink the Dinosaur, which ran for two years on CBS and has been on various cartoon networks ever since then. I think that's enough about me for the moment. Keep going, guys. Well, I was going to say that uh, what I remember doing at TMS was Bionic 6. Yeah. did an episode of Bionic 6. Um, it was such a, you know, you have to remember that in the beginning, there were really only about three companies that mattered. And Hanna-Barbera was one of them, Filmation was the other one, and maybe Ruby Spears when they- Which when was kind of owned by HB. Which eventually. was also, yeah, eventually really a part of HB, or owned by the same people that owned HB. So we all kind of started in that 
little small situation. And then, and I, I remember it being when Margaret left to Hanna-Barbera, because sort of the rule was for most of these networks that they would go to Hanna-Barbera first. So CBS had to deal with Filmation, and everything that Filmation did ended up on CBS. But um, all the other networks would look to Hanna-Barbera for their programming. And Margaret was synonymous with Hanna-Barbera. So it was Margaret, Hanna-Barbera, Margaret, Hanna-Barbera. And then Margaret left Hanna-Barbera and went to, to um, Marvel Productions. And then it was like Nomad in Star Trek. You know, it's like, but we buy our programming from Hanna-Barbera and Margaret, but Margaret is no longer in Hanna-Barbera, but, 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 and smoke coming out of the ears. And then suddenly it introduced this idea that, well, wait a minute, now we could go to all these other companies for programming. We don't just have to get it from these suppliers that we've been. And that's when it exploded. And so for the rest of us, suddenly we were being courted by other companies and we were free to do other things. And, and that's where you get everything starting. It's, I consider it like the Big Bang. You know, it explodes. And we all know each other and we all know the same people uh, because we all started out in this little, little group. Yeah, it was, it was a small area, basically down, everybody down the street from each other. Yeah. And then Disney joined in 87 with the Disney Afternoon, and they looked around, of course, they had deep pockets. And there are all these littler companies, and HB was a reasonable size, but most of these companies, like Domation, uh, wonderful guy, but yeah, he never had an extra dollar to his name as he put Lou Shannon. Lou, 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 and people that have worked for him, which is everyone I know except me. Just, just revere the man as far, as far as somebody to work for. He's a good-hearted fellow. Um, but then, as it kind of where it got huge, they, they had trailers in the, in the parking lot because there weren't enough offices for everybody. It just was, was this huge factory. And then, boom, Disney shows up. There's another 800-pound gorilla there. Yeah. And they hired about 100 of us from Hanna-Barbera, from other places, from smallish shops. And then it kind of contracted. I mean, there ended up being you know, three or four major places, and then uh, Warner's came along and uh, kind of absorbed HB. And it's, it's, it's fascinating how, but at, at the time when we all started, it was a bit of a wild west. All these different people, you know, oh, I can go work for him, I can go work for him. And, and the, more, the nice part was the more different companies you work for, the more contacts you have. So like if suddenly Margaret, if he's worked for Margaret at, uh, at Stan Lee at, at Marvel, and in 1990, Margaret becomes the head of Fox Kids Network, suddenly you know, you've got the top person that could buy your show or, or ask for you to be part of a show, yeah. and her word is, is law. So that was, we kind of all grew up together as as the, the market grew, and there was just some really fun. Uh, Beetlejuice was a really fun one. It's very ancient, like 88 through 90. So I got in at the tail end. Uh, it kind of feel like an, an, an 80s show to me. And it was just, Margaret's amazing. She was amazing yeah. at Hanna-Barbera. She was amazing for like seven years at uh, Marvel. Even though they couldn't sell a Marvel show because nobody in Hollywood believed that Marvel superheroes were, would be at all popular or profitable. <laughs> That's how lame these people are. She, she and Stan tried from 1982 
1987 to get X-Men on the air and none of the networks would even consider it. Oh, that's a few hundred, you know, people guys in their basements reading comic books. That's, there's no more, there's no audience for that. She even took money from another show, spent $300,000 to produce Pride of the X-Men in the mid-87, which was, which was, she said, look, if you want to look at scripts, look at this wonderful animated show that I put together. And I looked at it and I said, eh. So finally, after 20 years in the wilderness, you know, producing half the great shows that ever were in television, kids' television, she gets hired at Fox, and the first thing she says is, we're doing X-Men, Batman, and Spider-Man. Yeah. Uh, you know, my boss doesn't get it. You know, he thinks I'm crazy. He tells me if, if any of these fail, I'm gonna get fired. But uh, these, this is why I've been spent 20 years in the business. And we all owe it all to this one lady. Yeah, I owe my entire career to Margaret Lynch because uh, Margaret was my boss at Hanna-Barbera. She was my boss at Marvel Productions, where, by the way, I ended up hanging out a lot with a guy named Stan Lee. Because Stan had an office, you know, on the same floor as me, and we became pretty good friends. And then that sows the seeds for when it comes time to do X-Men, she knows all about Eric and what he's capable of doing. She knows me and what I'm capable of doing. I know Stan, we both know Stan. So it all, we all kind of rose up together, and that's, that's the importance of the 80s is that it provided the foundation for a lot of the really good stuff that we were able to do in the 90s. Um, so we kind of slogged our way through a lot of garbage. I got a funny story though about the Popeye. You mentioned, you mentioned Popeye and Son. My friend Dave Stone, who became an Academy Award winning uh, special effects editor, he won an Academy Award for Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, but he started out in the, uh, in the sound editing department at Hanna-Barbera. And he wrote a funny song. He wrote a funny memo that was a parody that he circulated through the building. And it was supposedly a network memo. And it said, um, we're very excited to be uh, doing Popeye. However, uh, please note that we can no longer call him Popeye because that makes fun of, uh, of disabled people. So we are going to have to refer to him now as visually impaired. Um, and we no longer can have him uh, eating uh, spinach because the sponsor's not crazy about that. They'd really like to be promoting their product. So the new Popeye theme song is, I'm visually impaired the sailor person. I'm visually impaired the sailor person. I'm strong to the finish because I eat my breakfast cereal. I'm visually impaired the sailor person. <laughs> so so when, when, when you, you're breaking into television and you're getting into this, this joyful, you know, lifelong dream of a job of, of, of supporting yourself and your family as a screenwriter, and you get gigs like that, you know, well, you have to kind of must your way through it and be a professional because you don't know when right around the corner, uh, you know, X Men or Beetlejuice or Batman or Spider Man is going to be waiting for you. Yeah. And, and so, if you've been a good soldier up to that point, you've made, and you've been a decent person to the people you work with. We, we've got some prima donnas in our business, and every business does. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing how people don't learn that if someone's going to hire you, there's better chance if they like you in the first place, if, you, if you've done a good job for them and you're a likable person. Yeah, I mean, you never knew where the next gig was going to come from. You know, what drives me a little bit crazy today is when you talk to some of the younger people that are working, and they, they, they are under the impression that they have choice. 
And, you know, I did, a, I did a panel where somebody was talking about how, well, I don't write, you know, kid stuff, and I don't want to write comedy, and, and, you know, I only want to write action-adventure, and I'm thinking, I'll write whatever they want, you know, because that's kind of how my career has been. I've, I've, I've worked on comedy, you know, in the beginning they thought I was a comedy writer, then I became action-adventure, and then everybody said, oh, he's now he's an action-adventure writer. But the whole thing is, is... I'd like to introduce my wife, partner, co-writer, and Karen Wilson. <laughs> Karen, have a seat. I'm so sorry, I'm late. I have to get one of these. And... Oh my goodness. Uh -huh. <laughs> this is due. I've never been tagged before. <laughs> None of us have. Yeah, you want to introduce yourself? Oh, I get it. You want to catch your breath? Yeah. Let me catch my breath. You guys talk for a second. Uh, network executives were not always as, as wonderful as uh, Margaret. We, uh, Karen and I did not have the good fortune of working with her very much, if at all. But we did work with uh, the CBS executive named Judy Price. <laughs> oh, God. And Judy Price, um, hired us to develop a, uh, a series about a young King Arthur. So this is Arthur after the sword and the stone, but before the rest of Camelot. Yeah. So, all right, we're working on that, and she liked what we were doing, and we went all the way. We did the development. We did the series Bible, which tells you all about the situations and characters. And then she said, okay, this is looking good. Go to script. So. They're paying us all along to do these things. So we're going to script. We write a script. She likes the script. She approves the script. Great. It's all looking good. Now we're waiting to see if we get a slot. We have a meeting with Judy. She looks at it and she goes, well, you know, nobody knows who King Arthur is. <laughs> the, the only slightly good thing was the show that got on instead of us was Ruby Spears' Superman. So at least people knew who Superman was. And we did get to write two episodes of that, so that was something. Hello there. <laughs> oh my goodness, I'm so glad to see all of you. I'm so amazed and honored and privileged to see so many fans of 1980s animation, because I have to tell you, it was a blast writing it. Um, I was a 29-year-old kid when I got started, and that was a little while ago, I think. <laughs> so uh, we're on Internet Movie Database. Uh, Karen Wilson, with two L's, if you want to look us up. But I think we've written almost, almost 60 produced half hours of animation. And I think one of the strengths for myself and Chris is that we got to write for a lot of shows. And a lot of the shows, at the very same time, we would be going across the room, we would be at Disney in the morning for a meeting with Gummy Bears, and we'd be in the afternoon talking to Jason the Wheeled Warriors. Down the block, Duke. And then the next day, we'd be talking to Transformers. Or, you know, uh, so, or G.I. Joe, so, and selling stories to them. So it was a very strange thing to bend your mind around different universes every single day. Yeah. There was one week we were coming up with story ideas for the Smurfs and Rambo during the same week. 
Rambo was great because they said, oh, we're going to do all, Mike Chang was the story editor for Rambo. Yes. And he said, we're going to do action, action, action. And we've got ex-mercenaries and ex-marines writing the show. And yeah, okay, fine. So we came up with an idea about Rambo trying to recover the USS Ironsides, which the bad guys have hijacked, and they're going to use it to steal a nuclear submarine. After we finish the script, they're getting ready to go into production. They come back to us and they say, okay, what's the moral of the story? And the moral of the story is, it's not nice to steal nuclear submarines. <laughs> they didn't go for that, so we came up with something about learning from history and tied that into the, uh, the ironclad ironsides. And you know, one of the cool things about the 80s, though, was you never knew when you were going to find yourself in a room with a genuine celebrity. Because a lot of, that was the beginning of a time when a lot of the celebrities were starting to spin themselves off as cartoon characters. So Martin Short was doing uh, The Misadventures of Ed Grimley, and uh, I ended up doing uh, Kid and Play's cartoon show for, uh, for NBC. I was under contract to NBC, and they came to me one day, and they said, uh, well, we want to do a show with Kid and Play. And I said, oh, really? What are, what are kids at play? What is that? <laughs> And they said, well, no, you got to see this movie, House Party. And this was before you could get movies on, on uh, videocassette even. Uh, so I ran to Universal, uh, to you know, the theater complex, and caught the last night of House Party uh, playing at the theater. And I saw the movie, and I thought, OK, well, this is cool. And literally, within about a week, I was in a room with Kid and Play, and we were figuring out their show. And I did one season of their show on uh, NBC. I was a showrunner, along with Cynthia. And then um, the, the producers of the show came to me and they said, well, you know, the boys are happy with the, the way the show is working out. Would you like to write a movie for them? And I said, yeah, I think I'd like to do that. And, uh, and so I wrote a film, long story short, I wrote a film called Class Act, which has turned out to be one of their seminal films. Um, so, you know, you just never knew what being in cartoons was going to lead to. You have to understand that we were really in the ghetto. We were in the entertainment industry ghetto at that time. Now everybody, every star wants a cartoon show, and every network wants a star-based cartoon show, and it's all very cool and wonderful. But in the 1980s, it was the ghetto. Margaret tells a funny story about how she was at a party, you know, with a lot of famous executives and famous powerful people. And one person came up to her and, and said, oh, and what do you do? And she said, well, I work in cartoons. And, and then he just immediately walked away. <laughs> because there was no advantage to talking to someone who worked in cartoons. So we were very happily working in the ghetto. And every once in a while, what people who, who, were, who were more aspirational, let's say, more aggressive about their careers, what they didn't understand was that working in cartoons was a great way to, to really meet cool people at that particular time. So uh, that's Well, it. I have to admit that I wrote animation because I love animation. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, you know, I grew up on Speed Racer and Kimba the White Lion, and you know, I saw those shows. And what I really loved about animation, though, is that the writer gets to be the director. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize that, is that everything that the characters do, they storyboard and animate. 
as, ex as an example, Chris, I don't remember what show it was on, but we, we, wrote, we wrote a little side note in the directions that said, one of the characters was riding shotgun. That was for Mask. So all of a sudden, what shows up, coming back from the animation studio, and everyone's freaking out, people with shotguns. <laughs> well, let me, let me explain to you why that happened that way. Bill Hanna, whose sole purpose in life was to make a cartoon for the least amount of money possible. <laughs> Bill Hanna figured out, see, initially in animation you had what were called story men. And story men were guys who would figure out the story and they would draw it in little, little uh, panels, what we today would call storyboarding. And they would pin those panels up on the wall and that was the script. There was no script, that was, that was the movie. So when you see these guys doing Pinocchio and stuff and they're pointing to boards full of drawings, they are writing the story for Pinocchio. But that costs money to have guys draw these individual pictures and images. So Bill Hanna figured out that if you could train writers to think visually, they would write down exactly what was supposed to happen on screen. And this is the greatest training that we ever could have gotten. Because we couldn't write, you know, today writers write, and then they fight. And some storyboard guy has to figure out the, the battle. I still feel like a criminal when I write a script today, and I, and, and I know better, but I write something like that. But you can do that now. Working, working for Bill Hanna, you had to literally write, you know, each and every scene, each and every cut, each and every frame, describe what was going to happen. And that was cheaper for him. It was great training for us, and that's the way we learned. So that's why storyboard artists were told, you do exactly what's in the script. You do not do any extra thinking, which created great animosity between artists and writers. That's the, that's the genesis of the animosity between artists and animation writers. You know, may I mention Harry Love for just a moment? Oh, sure. Uh, many people don't know who Harry Love was. Great man. Uh, but an amazing man. Uh, Hanna-Barbera was so desperate for animation writers that they gave a class, and that's actually how Chris and I got in. Yeah, Harry Love, I actually took that class too. Did you? Yeah, oh, I did. Wow, it was Harry. an amazing class yeah, with, Harry, yeah. with, with Harry Love, and you know, because you learn about not only about thinking visually, but also thinking the way an actor thinks, and really thinking about making the voices distinct and different, and uh, and also having fun having fun with it, yeah. so, yeah. Yeah, you can't, you can't write animation unless you can do the voices, because you had to do the voices in your head in order to get it right, so, you know, Smurfette was, oh, Papa Smurf, <laughs> you know, and if you can't hear that in your head when you're writing, then it really becomes impossible to write cartoons, very important thing. The follow up for us to follow up with John was saying about, about the detail, both of them were saying about the detail of, of in effect, seeing the whole movie in your head. It's, it's the opposite advice that you get if you're trying to say write a sitcom or, or even a live action feature. But we, we, my wife and I had the opportunity to be the showrunners on a, a live action show for Fox Kids uh, called Young Hercules with Ryan Gosling. 17-year-old Ryan Gosling, who my wife got to hug twice. <laughs> she will tell everyone in the room. Uh, yeah, so just the, 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 it's just a perfect example of the difference between thinking like an animation writer and thinking like a live-action writer. 
Our X-Men scripts were 40 pages. They're too long, they're too dense, we put too much in them. But they needed to be at least 34 to 35 to really tell the detail of the story so that we could hand that to the artists and they knew what it was that we needed to see and what they needed to draw. In Young Hercules, the scripts for the same length show were 20 pages. This was 20 to 40. Yeah. And all the rest of that detail in, and it makes, uh, in, in animation writing is us thinking like a filmmaker and saying, oh, well, if this has to happen, you know, Wolverine needs to be in this corner, and, or you know, Beetlejuice needs to be coming up over the hill. And you tell them that, you don't just say, something happens in the valley. You spell out, he does this, she does this, he does this. And when you get to the end of the script, you take a lot of space, it's not just dialogue. Mm -hmm. And that was, again, both of them were saying, it's incredibly great training for thinking like a screenwriter because you're imagining every bit of it as opposed to just what people are saying or maybe what the mood is. You can always pare it back. You can always trim stuff back. But um, yeah, that's, and that's a great fun, for, I think, for most of us yeah. in animation writing. We're not just, okay, the friends walk in, into the, the coffee shop and they sit and talk for 10 minutes. That's cool, that's fun, that's funny, that's character driven, but that doesn't feel like filmmaking. The filmmaking on Friends happens on the set, but for us, the filmmaking happens in our heads. Yeah, it was it, fantastic training for writing visually. In fact, um, there was a period of time at Disney where they were not hiring cartoon writers, they were only hiring sitcom people. And I thought that was so bizarre because all sitcom people write are they stand in a room and they talk and then they move to another room and then they talk and then they move back to that first room and then they talk. <laughs> and I thought, what kind of a basis is that for writing cartoons? And you really, you get a whole bunch of really bad Disney shows during that era where characters are just endlessly talking. But we had to choreograph all the action. We had to figure out what people were going to do and how they were going to do it and where they were going to do it. Um, there's one other <clears throat> really cool thing about 80s animation that I have to point out. When I started out in the early 80s, all of the people doing the voices were the people that I had grown up listening to as a kid. So my first recording session that I ever attended was a Flintstone session, and it was Henry Corden doing Fred, Gene Vanderpile doing Wilma, Mel Blanc doing Barney, um, it was really, that was the great thing, you know, when, when they resurrected the Jetsons, they brought back all these people. Again, it was Mel Blanc doing Mr. Spacely, and they had, you know, uh, um, uh, Penny Singleton doing Jane. Um, so that was, for me, the most exciting part of, of working uh, in the 80s in animation was all the voices that I had grown up hearing as a kid were now still, you know, Don Messick was still Scooby-Doo and Shaggy. And Dawes Butler was still doing Elroy and the Jetsons. These these are the famous the famous voices. June Foray was doing Jokey Smurf. June Foray was Rocky the Flying Squirrel. So to get to work with all these people was really for me the high point. And I think that's the thing I miss the most now is that all these folks are gone, and it isn't quite the same thrill, you know, when and if you get into the recording studio. But working for Disney. I think that you could go into the diplomatic corps afterwards. <laughs> because uh, we did a little script for Little Mermaid, and 40, I mean, mind you, it's a 22 minute 
so, and there was, you know, we got 40 pages of notes from people about, and they were all contradictory about what they actually wanted this script. And the poor story editor, all of a sudden we had to sit down and, you know, basically you would completely rewrite a show, you know, either not at all or 10 times. And so sometimes you'll wonder, though, why things are disjointed. When we were doing Galaxy High, I remember Larry Dottilio and Chris and I, we were up in the room watching the voice actors, and the uh, CBS executive was there. And he stopped, and he listened, and he said, well, I think that a giant wish mist should descend upon Galaxy High, and that should be the cause of what's going on in your episode. And it, it was those lips, those eyes, which was about Mick Jagger and, and his friends. And, and we, we all had to stop for a moment in utter shock because we're recording it now. It's been written, it's been approved, and there's no place for a giant wish list. Yeah. But, yeah. but that happened very often. Yeah, it seemed like the basic uh, um, qualification for being a network executive is never having read a comic book Never having watched a cartoon, never having enjoyed a children's anything. Never then, having met a child. <laughs> yes. They're not sure what they were, but they were they were telling stories yeah. to them, yeah. And they would say, You're hired, you know. Ridiculous. And they have that attitude towards writers. I remember when Chris and I created Dink's Little Dinosaur for Ruby Spears. I mean the show you know, the show happened because Judy Price looked out her window and saw a giant poster for Land Before Time. Okay? And so they said, do Land Before Time, but not Land Before Time. <laughs> so I was like, all right. So Joe Ruby took us out to lunch, and, you know, he dropped his spoon, and he had the waiter bring him another spoon. And then he held it up and he said, writers are like spoons. I can get a new one whenever I wish. So, you know, that's the kind of pressure. This was our boss. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is Joe Ruby, in charge of Ruby's Spirit Studio. And then he assured us that he loved our work and he liked us. But he couldn't help say that. But he couldn't help us say that. And then I found out that he does that to every writer that he took out for lunch. Oh. <laughs> Drop a spoon on purpose. Okay. Yes. Same so, story. We started training. So, anyhow. That's how we were trained yeah, by our betters. <laughs> there are bosses all over the map in, in our business, and it really affects your life. Whether you've got a good, one, a good supportive one like, like Margaret, who will just say, uh, when we ask, can we do something as ambitious as this? Is this sure, push it farther. Versus really, the people who either don't care or are so anxious are going to get uh, a nasty letter from a mother you know, somewhere in Omaha. There, it's incredible pressure on Hollywood for kids programming. That was a thing that we had to, we had to learn to live within the limits. I mean, we're, we're doing X-Men and people are blowing up planets and battling supervillains. You have to find a way to do that that's not, yeah, that people will get too freaked out about. The great gag was, oh, I asked at, at, at Fox, well, are you getting nasty letters about how ferociously intense X-Men is, because the books are like R-rated, you know, the comic books are. So we did a gentler version, but it was still pretty intense. They said, no, no, the 80 show, Beetlejuice, got more angry letters from parents than any show we've ever done, and it's because 
he's a demon that lives in another world. Yeah. And he's the star of the show. And so what do you think they're going to get? Yeah. Well, so I remember. So you never know when you're writing. You never know what's going on. Filmation, when Filmation was doing The Lone Ranger in the early 80s, when a lot of this was first coming down, they got notes from the network saying, uh, The Lone Ranger cannot shoot his silver bullets. Yeah. He can't shoot at anyone. So the closest they were able to do, I think they had him like, he could shoot a rope and then a box would drop on the bad guy. That he could do. Yeah, yeah the censorship was pretty intense um, for everyone. Uh, you know, uh, I remember getting a note on Spider-Man, you know, caution that Spider-Man, when he lands on the roof, he doesn't hurt any pigeons. <laughs> um, you know, but you learn to live with it. You learn to work around it. Uh, and it, it, it was part of the creative challenge of making these things, you know, happen, was just sort of working around the limitations. And I think that's also good practice for writers, uh, is to understand how to work with the parameters that you're given. We can write anything. Yes. Those of us up here, whatever challenge you give us, we can write it, and that's because we had that kind of training. I don't know if you've had an opportunity, but uh, uh, along with our animation writing career, Chris and I got to write some comic books. Um, also for Disney, we did Chippendales, uh, Rescue Rangers. Oh, for the Disney Digest? Right. But our, the most fun we had was the uh, Masters of the Universe newspaper comic strips. And there's, uh, what, three and a half years that are collected. It's the equivalent of five feature films worth of Masters of the Universe story. And uh, it's published by... By Dark Horse Comics. The strip was originally syndicated to about 80 countries, but in the United States, He-Man had already finished its second year of new stories. So a lot of the newspapers were asking that, you know. So there were only about eight papers in the United States that carried the He-Man and Masters of the Universe comic strip. But if you're hungry for 1980s style Masters of the Universe stories, go on Amazon Books and, uh, you know, and, and enjoy. It's a pretty fun, it's about 500 pages worth of uh, and beautiful, beautiful artwork by? By uh, Gerald Fortin, who was a, uh, a designer for uh, the pre-production staff over at uh, Filmation. I was first working there. All right, well, I think we're getting pretty close now. Uh, uh, I'm, get, I'm getting there. Please, please wrap, wrap up. up. Please wrap if, up. If, if, if these three folks will, will, will uh, allow me a plug, I, I, we, have a, we have an X-Men panel at 1 o'clock in the library. So if you're interested in they'll awesome. be in the X-Men. The, the actress wrote will be there and a couple of the, of the artists and myself and my wife who both work central to the show. So uh, just my plot, as I said, and thank you for coming by about the 80s where we all learned everything that we know. And, and if I can throw in a plug, um, I just, uh, it just premiered my latest project last night here, which was Green Lantern, Beware My Power. Oh. will be coming out on Blu-ray DVD in a couple of days, actually the 26th, so in about a week uh, it'll be coming out, and I hope you all get a chance to pick it up and enjoy it. I have one more plug, but it's not for me. A very dear friend of mine, DC Fontana, yeah. remember a Star Trek fan? Yeah. Well, it turned for many years, if you knew Dorothy, you knew that she absolutely adored the King Arthur legend. 
Well, the last thing that she worked on before she passed away a couple of years ago was a novel called Futurus Rex, and it is now available as an ebook on Amazon. It just came out a few days ago. So the last writing of our dear Dorothy Fontana. So. Futurus Rex. Futurus Rex. Very sweet. I used to see her at Major Roddenberry's parties. Oh God. All the time, her infamous parties. Yeah, but what a storyteller she is, and this wonderful blend of science fiction and fantasy. F U T U R U S space Rex, and there's a. Uh, do check it out on Amazon eBooks. It is on Barnes and Noble or whatever you use for eBookery. You can get a hold of a copy of it. Coming in paperback soon. But I just love her so much. I just had to mention. I'm so excited that to get to read something by Dorothy again. I'm like. This podcast is not endorsed by Warner Brothers or Amblin Entertainment and is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. Animaniacs, Tiny Toon Adventures, Freakazoid, the Warner Brothers logo, all names, pictures, and sounds are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective trademark and copyright holders. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the Animaniacast unless otherwise indicated.